Uh, if you are newer to Element, welcome. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. I got to, yeah. On all the uh, communion tables throughout the room, there are sermon notes. They look like this. On the inside, you'll get some notes that go deeper as well, some questions to go deeper into what we talk about today, and that might be kind of cool for today. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Click on More and then Events in Uversion. It will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, announcements, questions, all that goes along with today's message. Why don't you stand with me for reading God's Word? This is Mark chapter 5, verse 14, and it says, The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And I'm going to tell you what had happened. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust you for the things that you have done in our lives. I ask that we would live under your authority and your grace and your goodness, and that we, as we live in great joy, would in turn give you uh, great glory. And that how we live and love others directly come out of our understanding of your love and grace given to us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing this 15-week series that will take us all the way through Easter on Matthew chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 9. It's all about the authority of Jesus. Uh, in Matthew 5-7, through 7, Jesus preaches this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. It is the most often quoted of all of Jesus' teaching, but it ends with this thing where everyone was in awe of the authority with which Jesus taught. Then Matthew 8 and 9 goes on to show you 14 different ways Jesus shows that authority. Now, last year, at the end of the year, we did this series that was called What in the World? It's our, it was like a, it's part one, actually, doing a part two right after Easter this year. But part one is all about some of the questions I have when I go to the Scriptures, and I read the scriptures, and I'm like, what in the world does that even mean? And then I projected that onto you like a good pastor. And I answered those questions so we could all be kind of on the same page. Again, the second part of that where I answer your questions is going to be right after Easter uh, this coming year. And I wrote this message for part one of that series, and then I got into this whole authority thing, and I'm like, oh, those verses are there too. Oops. So I'm going to deal with it here. We're going to look at a story that's found in Luke chapter 8. Mark chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 8. You can open your Bibles there to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew is the shortest account of what takes place because it will focus upon Jesus' authority. And this is about where Jesus casts out demons and sends them into pigs. Now, when you talk about that today, you get one of two reactions. One side sees demons everywhere. It's like, we got the demon of too much rain, or the demon of no rain, or the demon of the constipation, or the demon, like demons are everywhere. The other side sees demons as just gibberish, and there's nothing to do with that. I think it falls somewhere in the middle of those two things. If you really want to read a longer account of this, read uh, Mark's narrative in Mark 5, because it is the longest, most vivid, detailed account in the entire book of Mark, and it's also the most vivid, longest, detailed account of X exorcisms found in the entire Bible. So read that one if you want to. Uh, I was reading this thing from Tim Keller. He says what we look at today tell us three things. The complexity of evil, the pattern of evil and how it works in the life, and how evil can be defeated. I think it's good to look at those three things. We're going to kind of walk through those. But my question for my What in the World series was, what about all that bacon, right? All those poor pigs, right? What happened to all of that Maybe it's, okay, whatever. So we're going to read the entire story. If you're in the dark, then we'll talk about it. Let's be on the same page. Matthew 8, starting in verse 28. And when he, Jesus, and that's in his disciples, so when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him. Now, the Luke and the Mark versions only have one man in this encounter. That doesn't mean there weren't two. A lot of ancient writers were just focused on the one person who talks and gets interacted with the most. So it's not a contradiction. Just They just focus on the one. And for me, it almost seems like Jesus, 
Jesus is going here just to deal with this issue. Because as soon as it's done, he'll get in a boat and he will leave. Some people will say, you know, these men came to Jesus. I think Jesus goes here to seek these men out, to draw them to himself. So two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs. So they're living in the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And this is where Hollywood gets the idea of these really strong demons. In the book of Mark, it says they could actually break chains. Verse 29, and behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us? Hold on. What have you to do with us, O son of God? If you read the Bible with your kids, you should do the voices. Okay? If you get God, you do God voice. Hello, Moses! I know it still sounds like a girl, but... Hello! But do the voices! I know, mine sounds like Yoda with a cold. I got it. Okay. (laughs) Have you come here to torment us before the time? (laughs) It's in the rock. It's in the tree. It's in you. (laughs) Okay, got it. Okay. Now, a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. You're not even paying attention when I do the voice, so... And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Again, all that bacon destroyed. What? Verse 33. The herdsmen fled going into the city. They told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now, I'm not going to give you a whole thing about demons and the scriptures and the gospels, but if you do what I said during the What in the World series, you do a little bit of research, you'll notice four things. Number one, that demons seem to be a problem in the northern area where Jesus holds his public ministry. From the Sea of Galilee all the way up to Tyre and Sidon, they don't really show up in or around Jerusalem. Secondly, Jesus always casts out demons when he encounters them. Thirdly, Jesus often interacts directly with demons and he will dispatch them. And fourthly, when Jesus casts out a demon, there's usually no mention of what happens to the demon, which probably means that Jesus just eliminates them. Now, we can also assume that since there are a herd of pigs here, the region in Matthew 8, the country of the Gadarenes, was probably a Gentile area because pigs are unclean to Jews and Muslims. I was in Egypt a few years ago and I got a bacon cheeseburger. Not a bacon cheeseburger. It had a big old slab of beef jerky right on top. That was the bacon. It's not right. Don't order one. Just a heads up in case you ever end up there. Uh, In the scriptures, demons, again, seem to operate in this Gentile region. And when they talk to Jesus, they're usually begging not to be sent out of their hunting grounds in the places where they are. And Jesus will have nothing to do with it, and he casts them out. So we're going to talk about demons and the complexity of evil. The text starts like this. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him. Again, some people say that you know, that the men came. I think that Jesus drew them again to himself because I think God is always on a rescue mission. And here he's going to save these guys from these demons. But when I say demons, people say, demons, what? You don't believe in demons, do you? And I think a question to ask then is, why not believe in demons? Why not? Some people will say, well, it's irrational and illogical to believe in demons in our day and age because we're so much more advanced. But 
Really, why? And when I say demons, I don't mean the Hollywood or the TV shows kind of demons. I mean the biblical type of demons. I mean, if, if you're sure God doesn't exist, and then it's perfectly logical and consistent to say that I don't believe in demons. But if you're like most people, and most people, even today, who say they don't believe in God will say, but I can't really be sure that there isn't one, so they kind of come out as agnostic, then why is it illogical or rational to believe that there could be a God, but also not be supernatural, personal evil? I don't think there's anything irrational or logical about people believing in demons. Again, the biblical kind, not, not the Hollywood kind. But people will they, they say, well, it's, it's just primitive because people used to believe in demons when they didn't understand how the world worked. They didn't understand how complex things were, like diseases and mental illnesses and epilepsy. They attributed it all to demons. But that is not the case with the Bible. It's really not. Tim Keller points out this. He says, the biblical understanding of demons is part of the most complex, least simplistic, least naive, Eve, most multidimensional, most nuanced view of reality that exists. Why? Well, if you look at places in the Bible, places like Matthew 4.24, it tells us as news of Jesus spread, they started to bring him all of these people. The ill, the demon-possessed, lunatics, the paralyzed, and he heals them all. So the Bible differentiates between demon possession and diseases. It knows the difference between physiological problems and demon issues. They bring him the disease and the demon-possessed and also lunatics. The original meaning of this word for lunatics was anybody characterized by insanity, irrational behavior, or seizures. So the Bible understands the difference between insanity, mental illness, epilepsy, disease, and demon possession. They understood all of those things. Richard Baxter was a preacher in London in the 1600s, and he has this sermon, and it's called The Cure of Melancholy and Overmuch Sorrow. It's a great title, right? I am not that creative, but that's a great title. And the sermon is all about depression. And he says, according to the Bible, if you're depressed, there could be four different reasons for that. He says, number one, you could have a physiological issue. It could be an issue of nutrition or medicine. Maybe you need to take a pill. Maybe you just need rest. Secondly, he said there could be a moral basis for that depression. You could have dealing with guilt and shame in your life. And the requirements for this would be confession, repentance, knowing that Jesus has forgiven and loved you and taken your shame and pain upon himself. Thirdly, you might have a mental or psychological basis for your depression. Maybe something has happened to you in your life. Maybe you're going through something really hard and you're weary and worn out emotionally. In that case, you might need love and support and talk and community. And then he says, but there could be a fourth and evil demonic route to depression, in which case you need prayer and the word of God. See, it's much more nuanced. Today, our world is way more simplistic than that because people come at it at just one way. People say, oh, it's a physiological issue, so just take a pill. And that's how some people deal with everything. I had this doctor at one point. Every time he walked in, no matter what it was, I got a pill. Just take this. I'm like, all right. I don't think it did anything for me. It's maybe more weird. But uh, other people say it's, it's all psychological problems. And the answer they say is just talk and understanding. What did your mom do to you when you were a kid? A lot. Okay, a lot. You know, some people say, well, it's just moralistic. You just got to do the right thing and learn the right thing and do it all the right way. Many worldviews today are much more superstitious, though they wouldn't use the word superstitious, than the Bible. Many of these things see demons, but they wouldn't use the word demons, but they see them everywhere. The Bible itself is far more nuanced and more multidimensional than any of those worldviews that we have today. If you think your problems could only be physical or only be mental or only be moral or only be spiritual, you don't see the complexity of the scriptures and how they talk about some of our issues. It talks about that evil is out there, but it's also in here, in the human heart. 
It talks about how it is natural and supernatural. It talks about how it is individual, but it's also corporate, and that evil wants to defeat us. 1 Timothy 3.6 reminds us that pride is part of the enemy's trap, the devil's trap. It wants to suck us into pride. In Ephesians, Paul tells us that bitterness and grudges cause us to fall under the influence of the enemy. According to the Bible, demonic forces can be these things that aggravate other factors in your lives, but they don't always have to be. So you can't blame everything on the devil, though they could add to it. But you can't be like, it's not my fault. The devil made me do it. No, you're a dummy, and you're the one who did it. Okay, you got to own up to some of those things. But not only does the existence of personal supernatural evil explain some of the psychological problems that we have today, but I think it can also explain some of the social problems that we have today. Certain social systems are evil, and they destroy people within them. But when you look at the individuals in those systems, you realize they're not really that bad. I've been watching this show called The Man in the High Castle. Anybody seen The Man in the High Castle? Okay. For the three of you, great. Okay, the rest of you, I'll tell you what. So basically, it's this alternate reality where we lost World War II. And basically, half the U.S. is ruled by the Japanese, and the other half is ruled over by the Third Reich, by, by the Nazis. And what this show really does is it humanizes the families who live under these regimes. And you're like, oh, well, maybe these people weren't. Let me make it more for you. Okay, so we're coming out of political season, right? <laughs> Actually, we're not. It's just not letting us go. And, and if you are a conservative, you tend to look at these people who are liberal. And, and you label them. And you're like, oh, they just want to smoke dope and have sex with everything. They're a bunch of degenerates. They want to take my guns away. And if you're a liberal, you look at everybody on the conservative side and you go, those are a bunch of racists and homophobes and they want to shoot us all with their guns. I mean, and that's, that's how these two sides see each other. But if you actually meet people from the other side, you realize they're not really that bad. They're not. And what it is sometimes is you have these whole systems that come in and they begin to destroy people in the midst of these systems. I think it is impossible to account for all the evil and the wickedness in this world by just people. I think that outside of that, there is more than just human factors. And I think if you live in the world with a less complex understanding of how the scriptures speak about the world, you are going to be defeated by it. We need to understand what the world is really like and how it really functions. And if you think, if we could just get ourselves together and get our best minds together and our best practices together and get all of our technology together, we could deal with the human problem. The text of the scriptures tells you, no, you can't. You can't. It is bigger than that. You guys following me? Okay, that's my premise. That's where i got to start to get where we're going. So i got to start there to get through all of this and talk about the poor pigs. So the demon-possessed men, they, they come to Jesus, or Jesus comes to them. Mark tells you that nobody can contain them. Nobody can stop them. They're like those, those meth heads that the cops have to stick like five tasers in. Snap, snap, snap. And they just keep coming. They won't go down. So the town doesn't know, what, what am I going to do with it? What do we do? And so they, they do what I would do. They stick them out in the middle of nowhere so they can stop thinking about them and be done with them. I'm not saying it's right. I am telling you I am a horrible person. And I should never be king because certain things would happen that just would not be good. Alcatraz, great. Stick them there. We'll call it Meth Head Island. Drop them off. We're done. Not a good king. Okay? That's all I'm saying. Sometimes I'd be cold. But that's what the city did with these guys. They stuck them out there away from everybody. Said, oh, we're done. And it's sad because these demons are slowly destroying these men for their own enjoyment. In Mark 5.5, 5, 5, it says, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out. I think that crying out is the times when the guy's voice could be heard through the mess of what's going on in him. 
And I think Jesus comes because Jesus hears the cry because throughout the scriptures you were told that God is the God who hears the cry. We are people who are meant to hear the cry. And I think God hears the cry and Jesus comes. Says he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones so he's bleeding. He's got his blood dribbling out. I believe demons attack men because they hate the image of God in men. They want to destroy it. They want to debase it. They want to make mankind grotesque. And I think demons have the same goal for people who follow Jesus, to wreck the image of God. But their tactics for followers of Jesus are restricted. Colossians 2.15 says because of Jesus' work on the cross, they're disarmed. That God's spirit in us makes us so we cannot be possessed, but they still try and do certain things to us. They try to deceive and intimidate us so we don't trust in the authority and the power of God. And we think that we know so much better than God, again, how to live our lives. They try to blind us or have us live in unbelief or fear or I won't have enough security if I, if I really trust in the power of God. So this is what they do. Matthew 8, 29. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, what's going on here is, seems like something you'd see on like a TV show or a movie. I, I know. But believe it or not, a lot of people in Jesus' day were superstitious. I know, right? What? No way. Yeah, just like you. I mean, we think they're stupid country bumpkins. Same thing like you. You might have a pair of lucky socks, a lucky shirt, lucky underwear, lucky hat. I don't know. Maybe some of you guys play baseball and it's like you go to the, every time you got to go to the plate, tap, 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 dink, 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 tap, tap, tap. Okay. Everybody has stupid, crazy superstitions with you. You're just like these people who are here. There's a superstition at this time that said if you had somebody's full name, you would have spiritual power over them. So if you could understand what it was and say it, you would have... So these unclean spirits addressed Jesus with the title, Son of God. The Mark account says, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. This is supposed to be like a net that's tossed over Jesus and his authority and his power. It's an attempt to gain control and to render Jesus harmless. And anybody at this time who heard this or read this account, they'd be like, oh, snap, what's Jesus going to do? They just said his name. Oh, my goodness. Is Jesus' authority now diminished? No, it's not, because it's not voodoo. Okay, it is not voodoo. What's funny is the demons almost have these right theological facts by saying who Jesus is. I mean, they don't live in the truth or reality of it, but they kind of have the right facts about it. Mark 5, 9 says this. Jesus asked him, what is your name? So they're all, son of the most high God. And Jesus is like, shut up, what's your name? It's funny. I know you don't get it. Because you're like, oh, demons in the Bible, I can't laugh. It, it's supposed to be really funny because it's like, oh! And he's like, shut up. What is your name? What did he say his name is? My name is, my name is Legion. My name is Legion. For we, for we are many. For we are many. That's also an attempt at intimidation. There's one of you and a lot of us, so you better back off. You better step back. You don't know what you're stepping into right here. A Roman legion normally had 6,000 men in it. It, it doesn't mean that there's 6,000 demons in this guy. It's a name that tries to invoke fear. Jesus is having none of it. None of it. It doesn't even phase him. Matthew 8:31. And the demons begged him, so they go from like, oh, okay, please. Kind of like you when you're growing up with your mom. I want that. No, please. Right? It's kind of, the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, one word, go. Love that. Love that. Shows who has true authority. 
So they came out, went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the waters, and all the bacon gone to waste. Wah, wah, wah. Now, you, you have this pig. The book of Mark tells you there's 2,000 of them. That does not mean there were 2,000 demons in this guy. It means that there could have been a few or, or many, but it stirred everything up and it rushed it down. What the whole thing is about is the power and the authority and the ministry and the person of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said this of the event. Satan would rather vex, such a good word, vex. We need to use the word vex more. Satan would rather vex swine than do no mischief at all. He's so fond of evil that he would work it upon animals if he cannot work it upon men. See, first, I do not think that Jesus is showing mercy to demons or having compassion on them by letting them go into the pigs. The scriptures always tell you when Jesus acts out of compassion. Matthew 14, 14 will show you that. But there is no reference to compassion in Matthew, Mark, or Luke in this event towards the demons. Mark and Luke says he gave them permission to enter the pigs. Matthew says he uttered one word, which is go. It's not Jesus being motivated by feeling sorry for them. And it's not because the demons asked so nicely to go. I think there's two reasons why this happens. Number one, like always, for the glory of God. Here it is, the forward proclamation of the gospel. Jesus has all authority. It is shown in his person and who he is. And secondly, I think the town cared more for the welfare of these pigs than they cared for the men. 2,000 is a large herd of pigs in that day. The pigs are well cared for, more so than the men were cared for. The pigs, you see, they, they live out among these tombs, which means that the people care for the men this way. They might have just thrown some dead bodies out there, and the pigs might have actually been feasting on human flesh. And so you have these pigs. They're cared for when they're sick. They seek out the pigs when they're lost. They feed them when they're hungry. And they probably grieve for the pigs when they die. Their priorities are all out of whack. They believe these animals are worth more than a human soul. So glad we've outgrown that today. That's sarcasm. We haven't. I mean, today, we care more about doing something about stray animals than we do about the murder of unborn babies. Today, we care more about animals than we do about refugees. Because I don't care where you fall, like what your answer to the refugee issue is. We are called to care for foreigners. It's the heart of the gospel. So we've got to find a way to do this correctly. How do we care for those people? The Greek words that describe demon-possessed actually never uses the word possessed. It's a simple word that means demonized, vexed. Vexed with a demon or vexed with something like that. These demonized people where evil forces want to come in, what they're doing is trying to break apart what God intended for these people to be. But the Apostle Paul will say, like I said, when we are proud or selfish, we are actually to some degree acting like a devil. That's what we begin to act like. There's a difference between demon-possessed and us, I think, not necessarily of quality, but of quantity and, and how it fits within our lives because there are patterns in our lives that live out just like people who are demon-possessed. We become enslaved when we only focus on our own comfort and what we want and our own security and do not see the hope and the message that God wants us to give to other people. When we live our lives of our own selfish security, we are, in a sense, living and acting like someone who is demon-possessed. How about this? If you make anything more important to your meaning of life, more important to your self-image, more important to your self-worth or your happiness than Jesus, that thing will become your master. That thing will have authority over you. 
You, you've made a pact with it. And you can even say, oh, I'm a believer. I follow Jesus. But really, what is your heart centering on? What is the thing you think about all day when you get up in the morning? What is that thing that your eyes are really on? What's the thing that gives you your self-worth and your identity? Whatever it is, that thing will be your master. Becky Pippert wrote this. She says, The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. But there is one thing that is certain. No one controls themselves. We are all controlled by the Lord of our lives. We have all made a pact with something or somebody. We are not really in charge. And more and more you will find yourself enslaved because if anything is more important to you than Jesus, that thing becomes your functional savior, becomes your functional hope. You are enslaved just like the demon-possessed men and really just like the people in that village as well. They were enslaved just like the demon-possessed men. The, the herdsmen go to the city. They tell what happened. And Mark says they come back and the men are sitting there. They're in their right mind. They've never seen anything like this. The pigs are gone. They're all afraid. And part of their fear is that their worldview had been shattered. It had been shattered. They, they didn't know what to make of it. Because according to their superstitions, the demon should have had power over Jesus because they knew his name. Why doesn't this work? The worldview is shattered by the power and the authority of God. Just as our worldview is meant to be shattered any time we come face to face with Jesus. He's to shatter it. He's going to rebuild us to help us see the world the way he wants us to see the world. The book of Matthew ends right there because it's all about the authority of Jesus. I love what happens in the book of Mark, though. What happens in the book of Mark is Jesus goes to get in the boat and leave, and this guy wants to go with him. And this is what it says, Mark five nineteen. And he, that's Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, that's the area of ten cities, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. See, I get it, because this guy's like, you, you do not understand, Jesus, what I have done in the last few years, being possessed like this. I don't wear clothes. I run around naked. People have seen this all day long. They don't want to see this anymore. I, I need to go away. And Jesus is like, no, no, I know it's going to be hard. I know it'll take a long time for people to really believe that you've actually changed, that you don't get to run away. I want you to go back, and I want you to proclaim who I am and what I have done in your, in your city in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your own home. And I want you people to see that I have freed you, and I have saved you, and I have rescued you, and I want you to go and do this. And what you see about this guy, he doesn't have a degree in, degree in theology. What does he know? He knows his story. Jesus saved me, Jesus rescued me, and that's the story that he's going to go and tell. That's what he's going to do. How is evil defeated, not just in this guy's life, but in anybody's life, by the authority of Jesus? When this man, or these men, just with these demons in them, get before Jesus, what do they do? They are on their knees before him in surrender because he's the one with authority. And I don't know if you understand this, but what Jesus does in these verses is unprecedented in ancient literature. There is nothing else like it. Anytime in ancient literature somebody went and tried to deal with a demon or some force like that, they always call on a higher power, someone or something with more authority. The demons will do this to Jesus after they try and intimidate him. We're a legion! And then what do they do? They start to beg him. Why? Because he's the one that has authority. Again, it's almost comedic. Jesus alone in the history of the world, in all of ancient literature, does not call on a higher power. He does not say, oh, by the Most High God. In Matthew, he uses one word, go. And in Mark, he uses this one word, which translates as come out. That's how Jesus deals with the hurricane last week. 
That's how he deals with sicknesses the week before that. It's how he'll deal with his friend Lazarus who died when he raises him from the grave. Jesus doesn't work up a sweat. He doesn't roll up his sleeves. He doesn't say, I adjure you, or the power of Christ, or the power of me compels you. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Because he is the power himself. He is the one with all authority. I love what Tim Keller says about this. He says, when you look at this for us, because most of us aren't possessed by demons, so what do we kind of understand as we walk through this? Number one, when Jesus sets you free in your life from whatever chains you down, we live in freedom. When we start to live in freedom, we don't get to tell Jesus what the game plan is going to be. He gets to tell us. Go back to your people. Tell them what I have done. No, but I really want want to run away. No, you don't get to run away. What I want you to do is live on mission with and for me where you are. And I want people to understand who I am. We surrender, we submit, we follow Jesus, and we follow where he calls us to go. And the second thing is that all the wealth in the world, here it's pigs, is not worth one human soul. It's not. All your wealth is not worth losing your soul over. And what you see here is, is you have the beauty of the gospel wrapped up in what happens here. Because at the end of this thing, the guys are clothed, they're in the right mind, they're They're free. And if you move to the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus is in the same state that these guys were when he found them. Jesus is the one who was naked. Jesus is the one who was beaten. Jesus is the one who was bloodied. Jesus is the one who was crying out to God. Jesus is the one who will die and be placed into a tomb. Just like these guys. This is how Jesus dealt with evil. He absorbs the injustice and evil and sin and death into himself. When we say Jesus died on the cross for our sins, it is not a nice little phrase. What it means is that he took care of everything that chained us down and held us away from a relationship with God and each other. Jesus took care of it on the cross, taking away our sins so he could wipe out evil without wiping us out. That's what happens. How is evil defeated in our life? We understand the cost of what he did, our value in his eyes. It should enable us as a people to say, I am loved. Not because we're so lovely, but God makes us lovely. We get to say, I am delighted in. Not because we're always a delight. You know you're not always a delight. You got friends. If they're honest with you, they'll tell you, you are not always a delight. But we become delighted in because our God has chosen to delight in us. And save us. We are loved. We are delighted in. And what that means is your career is just your career. It is not your righteousness. It's not your glory. Your relationships are just your relationships. It's not your righteousness. It's not your glory. Our righteousness and our glory are found in the person of Jesus Christ. We have to understand that we have been set free. And we now get to go into our cities and our towns and our workplaces and homes and neighborhoods as agents of redemption and healing. Our eyes no longer need to be on ourselves and on our comfort. They need to be upon Him. No matter how messed up you've been or are or other people around you, our messed upness needs to be plunged into the grace of Jesus Christ. And then we all become these powerful tools for redemption in the world under His great and His good authority. This is what the book of Matthew wants you to understand about Jesus' authority. His authority in our lives is meant to bring us to a place of freedom. 
so we can stop hanging on to all of our preconceived ideas and simply live in the world the way he has called us to, to see things the way that he has called us to. Well, what about this? And what if this doesn't matter? We first and foremost follow him in all things because there are so many things in our lives that are going to want to chain us down. And Jesus comes, and when he breaks those chains too often, we are people are like, oh no! And we grab onto the chain that was broken because we love that thing so much. And the chain's been broken, but we're hanging onto the chain going, no, I love this thing. You don't understand. I've got to have my Pokemon. I don't know, you know, whatever it is. And Jesus has broken the chains. He has set us free. So those things don't have to have their hooks in you anymore. Our great God called us originally to be his image bearers in this world. And by his grace and what he has done on the cross and his authority, we get to become that again. His image bearers. We get to represent what he has done because he has set us free. If you do not know Jesus, you never trusted him, this morning, talk to one of the deacons in the back. They'll be there to pray with you because they love to pray with you about that. This is the idea of what brings us to communion every single week. You break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. Because we were held in chains. And he took everything upon himself in order to set us free. And we get to live in great freedom and great redemption because of what our great God has done and also what his spirit continues to do in us to break us down and remake us so we can understand more and more and more how God calls us to live in this world in a way that honors him. But we get to live in great freedom. Uh, the band's going to come up. They're around here somewhere. Uh, there'll be diggings and elders in the back. And if you guys would like prayer, they said they'd love to pray with you. If you don't know who Jesus is, you have something in your life that's totally holding you down and you really want to pray about being free of this thing, they would love to pray with you about that. But really, the, the only answer in all of that of being free from this is your life being surrendered to who Jesus Christ is. Uh, if you're possessed, they'd like to pray with you too. No, no demon jokes. What? <laughs> I am serious about that, though. <laughs> uh, seriously, if you guys have anything you'd like to pray for, it, they'd love to pray with you about that stuff. Uh, there's offering boxes in the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. So you have the opportunity. We do not pass a plate. It's an opportunity that we get to get up and actually give as part of our worship. And I think there's still some cookies and stuff in the back. You can grab something to eat, maybe meet some other people, make a time to sit down with one another, talk through some of the sermon note questions in there. I think a good question to ask is, is what things in your life chain you down? What, what things that chain you down that you really don't want to be set free from? What, what things or, or preconceived ideas or maybe there's, you've got some stuff that's happened to you in your past, in your life, and if you actually let those things go, you're, you would completely change, but you don't really want to change. You want to hold on to those things because it kind of defines who you are. You know, what, what are those things in our lives that we refuse to let go of? Where Jesus come and said, I have come to set you free. And the Son sets you free. You are free indeed. Because we are called to be a people who live in great freedom because of what Jesus has done. We find our hope and our life all in who he is. Because our God is good. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us in this room what it means to trust your authority in a way that we could let go of all the things that we are trying to hold on to day by day by day. I ask that you would show us in our hearts what we have made our functional Savior and our functional hope, the thing that we think we just can't live without. Have us be able to see it as you shatter it 
that we are no longer beholden to that thing and can begin to live and walk in true life and grace and peace as you have always intended for us. I ask that you teach us that we are a people who get to come as exactly as we are. No matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, that we get to step out of the places that we are in and step into your great grace that has set us free from everything that has held us down. Teach us not to be a people who love our chains, but a people who love you more than anything in the world because you have first loved us. Teach us to live in the grace and the freedom of your hope that is shown to us throughout the pages of Scripture, but also shown to us day by day by how your Spirit convicts and leads us. And I ask that we would listen as you lead us into places of great freedom and hope, that we would see this world as you do, and that we would be your ambassadors to it, your image bearers, so the world would know how great and good you are. We ask this in your Son's good name. Amen.